One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. Ten years ago, Cord Jefferson was working as the West Coast editor for Gawker. You know, basically my job. Now, his directorial debut, American Fiction, is poised to get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture and could very well win Cord the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. This darkly satirical film, which is based on the book Erasure by Percival Everett and stars Jeffrey Wright as a novelist named Monk, who tries giving the public what they want from a black artist with hilarious and ultimately damning results, premieres in theaters next Friday, December 15th. I got a chance to see it earlier this fall, and it instantly became my favorite movie of 2023. Which really is no surprise, given that before making this film, Cord wrote some of my all-time favorite episodes of TV on shows like Master of None, The Good Place, Station Eleven, and especially the transcendent Hooded Justice episode of HBO's Watchmen, for which he won an Emmy Award in 2020. So while this is not an entirely comedy-focused episode of this podcast, I was thrilled to get the opportunity to talk to Cord Jefferson about making American fiction and so much more. Here's a clip from the film's trailer to just give you an idea of its very unique tone before we get into our conversation. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. Look at what they published. Look at what they expect us to write. I just want to rub their noses in it. <laughs> I'd be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. We sold a book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. Now, is Stag a pseudonym? Yeah. Mr. Lee can't use his real name. Is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that shit? No, no. No, I don't. Well, Cord, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here on the podcast um, because I have to tell you that I've always been a little bit or, or a lot uh, fascinated and a little bit envious of your career um, as, a, <laughs> as a journalist turned uh, screenwriter, um, someone from, from my world in the media who has crossed over to the other side. Yeah, thank, well, thank you so much. I mean, I, I, uh, I still miss... I miss journalism. There's a lot of, uh, I will say that the grass may always be greener because there's a lot of <laughs> headaches over here. I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, we have our own headaches, I think. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have such a unique road from journalism to Hollywood. Um, so I'm wondering if we can just start there. What was the yeah. catalyst that kind of that brought you from from one to the other? Well, you know, I'd, I'd always been interested in sort of writing screenplays one day, but I didn't know anybody in the industry at the time. I had uh, no connections, no family connections, no friend connections. There was, there was, uh, you know, and sometimes entertainment can feel like if you don't have those connections and sort of like getting into the world is, you know, there's insurmountable obstacles. And so I was working as a, uh, I was the West Coast editor of Gawker from 2012 to 2014. 
If anyone can remember Gawker, it's been a while. First, first iteration <laughs> of Gawker, not second, not Gawker 2.0. The most yeah, recent that was, Gawker. That was short-lived. Yeah, yeah. This was the this was the longer-lived one. I had been writing there for a couple of years, and and then one day out of the blue, a guy reached out to me and said that he'd read some of my work and asked me if I wanted to come write for a TV show. It was uh, the show was called Survivor's Remorse, and the the showrunner is this guy named Mike O'Malley, who's an actor and a writer. Um, He's been. In, he was the host of Guts. I don't. That that dates oh, yeah. me a little That's, bit. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, so, I'm okay, right there okay. with you on that one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So so he was the host of Guts. If you remember that, um, and then he was he was a father on Glee, and then he became a writer. I think his first writing job was he went to write for John Wells on Shameless for about three or four seasons, and then he got his own show called Survivor's Remorse that's based loosely on LeBron James's life, and he asked me to come write for him there. So yeah, I mean, you're a lot of your early work um, is in the world of comedy um, on, on the TV side. Um, this is a podcast that mostly focuses on comedy. Um, another early gig I know after that was on uh, the nightly show with Larry Wilmore, right? Yes, Which sir. Is kind yes, of a, sir. That was probably a good transition as well from sort of the uh, the news world to the to the TV writing world because it kind of bridges bridges the gap. Yeah, absolutely. Also on top, you know, sort of, so it allowed me to utilize some of my sort of old skills as a journalist. But on top of that, it was also, it also allowed me to get my sea legs as far as writing went. I, I, so working on Survivor's Remorse, I had a great experience in the writer's room, but I wasn't able to, I didn't get a script. I was sort of, I was, I was, you know, everybody else wrote the scripts and I sort of pitched and stuff, but I didn't get to write a draft of anything. And so I was still very, very apprehensive uh, that I could write for TV when I went to the nightly show, just because I'd never, I technically had worked in a writer's room, but I'd never written anything that ended up on air. And so I was a little nervous, but the great thing about a late night show like that is, you know, it's, you're writing every day. Like you're creating a half hour of television literally every weekday, right? And so, well, that's not true. Monday through Thursday. And then on Friday, you're preparing for Monday's show. So there is just a, it's a constant grind. And the good thing is that that forces you to pitch a lot and write a lot. So you're just like constantly making stuff. And so finally I was like writing stuff that was getting on air. I had jokes on air. I had bits on air. Like I was learning how to sort of like write comedy, which had never been something that I had, that I had fully um, devoted myself to. And so it just finally like gave me some, um, some confidence in my abilities. And so, because I was sort of like finally getting stuff made and, uh, you know, it was it was a really great time. The the only problem is is that you know the flip side of that coin is that it's also like deeply exhausting, and so because <laughs> it, it is just yeah, it's just a brutal grind. Like even even if you go to a place like Fallon or Kimmel, which these are these are places these are guys that sort of like their their operations are well oiled machines at this point. Like they know how things are going. They've got their bits. You know, they've got their they've got their sort of like the show's built in already and you can join in. And even on that kind of show, it's still exhausting. Our show where you're trying to build from the ground up, you know, it was like brand new. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just the sort of like brutal pace of a regular late night show. It was a brutal pace of regulate of a regular late night show that also we were trying to figure out what the show was, you know, and sort of like build it as it, as we jumped off the cliff and we're trying to build it as we fell. And so it was great. I really enjoyed it. It was hard, but, but I had a lot of fun, but after about 16 months, I, I reached out to my reps and just said, I, I don't have it in me anymore. This is like exhausting and I'd like to get back into sort of like narrative scripted TV. And so after that, I went to uh, Master of None season two was the was the sort of second narrative show I was on. 
Yeah, so you did Master of None. You did The Good Place, another comedy. Um, uh, I want to talk about American fiction, obviously, um, because uh, for one, it's it's I haven't seen everything uh, that's coming out this year yet, uh, but it's it's definitely up there for me as, as a favorite. Oh, um, thank I think you. it's such a phenomenal film. Thank um, you. And it's so good at um, balancing the the comedy and the drama and the satire of it, which I think is sort of it has to nail that to work, and I think it really does. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's it's not a it's not a comedy film outright, but there's a, a lot of comedy in it. Um, is that something that that appealed to you for this? You know, as your as your first film as a as a writer director to to really lean into that side of things? Absolutely. Like I, I don't. You know, my favorite my favorite drama TV shows like make me laugh harder than almost anything else. Like so, like you know, I think people tend to forget like how hilarious. Um, the Sopranos is like the Sopranos makes me laugh right. so yeah. much every time I watch it, and I feel the same. I feel the same way about Mad Men, right? It's like so, so, so funny, and it's not. It's no surprise that Matthew Weiner and uh, David Chase like started out on sitcoms. They started out on Half Hours, you know, like they 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 are they are guys who began their careers writing comedy, and then eventually they got into drama. And of course, you know, they they they're not going to leave those comedy abilities behind, and so. To me, I sort of, I don't, I never wanted one or the other. Like, I don't want to make super morose stuff that's that's very grim and and bleak. I'm happy to watch it sometimes, and I can really like it on a on a craft level. But it's just not something that I want to make at this point in time. And I felt the same way about sort of like a comedy movie. Is like I never wanted to make a full slapsticky, just sort of like straightforward. This is a comedy. In fact, I think that. I think that both are improved when you have the other, right? And so I think that I always like something that sort of like leans into both. And so when I set out to make this, I just wanted it to feel like life, you know? And I think that life is neither comedy nor tragedy. I think that it's, you know, it's frequently the same thing, both of those in the same day, sometimes the same hour. Um, And so like, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to make something that felt like that. And so I'm happy with that. I, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I, at least with this, you know, this, this isn't a persuasive essay, this movie, it's not an op-ed column. It's just kind of, uh, you know, I want people to just come and have a good time and enjoy themselves. So I always wanted it to be funny. I always wanted, I, I know that I always wanted it to have levity. I never wanted it to feel too grim. I'm sort of, my intention was the film is that I think that we are frequently too self-serious when we talk about these things, you know, we've gotten so self-serious when we talk about race in America and identity and sexuality and like, you know, it does feel, um, and I understand why people are serious about these issues because they are serious issues with, with, you know, occasionally fatal consequences. So I understand the impulse to be, um, sort of like very stoic when talking about these things. But I also think that, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat and there's more than there's more than one way to build empathy about these kinds of issues and there's more than one pe- one way to get people interested and I frequently think that you know laughter is is one of those ways and I think that frequently that is um you know a movie with some levity and some and then a lot of laughs and heart is going to be more inviting to a larger swath of people than sort of like a a self-serious drama is going to be yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine the movie now with anyone besides Jeffrey Wright in the lead role as Monk, but I think he also does a really interesting thing to balance the drama and comedy of it. Because, you know, as far as I know, he has not done a ton of comedy in his no, career. No. He's often a pretty serious guy on screen. And the character is actually a pretty serious guy, too, in a lot of ways. Um, 
so how did you think about uh, him in the role? Was there a uh, was there is there a story behind uh, getting him to do it? Was he reluctant at all, or or how did you how did he end up uh, being playing this part? And how do you think about it? He was slightly reluctant at first, I, but I, I I started thinking of Jeffrey when I was reading the novel. Like I started reading the novel in Jeffrey's voice. That's how early I started thinking of him for this part. Um, I had no idea if he was going to be interested, but like I was. It's actually dangerous, I think, to think of an actor that early on because if you get, I had really had my heart set on it. And if he had said no, I don't know what I would have done. I'd have been inconsolable. But when I came to him with the script, he was, uh, he didn't, he didn't take it immediately. We sort of took about like three or four months of conversations with him to sort of like get him to fully sign on. And one of the things that he would ask a lot about, you know, he would ask a lot of questions, very probing questions, somebody thinking thoughtfully about a project that they might want to do. And he would ask me what tone I was thinking of and sort of like uh, tonal comps and other actors that I might uh, sort of like want to play the roles and just sort of like very probing questions about like, well, what, do, what are you basically going for here? And the thing that we both agreed upon after that first meeting was that we wanted it to be really funny. That's what he said. He's like, he said himself, like, I want this to be hilarious. And I've said, and I said the same thing. I also knew, well, I didn't know, but I assumed, and I was sort of like had a good inclination that this was going to be the case, that Jeffrey would just sort of, he'd be, well, I knew that he'd be a great straight man against sort of like the absurdity going on around him, right? Like, I think that I knew that that was going to be how he was going to play it. It was just sort of like he was going to be the kind of like voice of reason amongst all these, all these insane people going around him. I think though that what I, what I also, what I anticipated, but what I didn't know for sure was, he just plays it so subdued that sometimes, like, I didn't know that he would do that. But when he started doing it, it was like, yes, this is exactly what the character should be doing. Is just like, he is so funny in these kind of, like, subtle facial expressions. And so we really wanted to, we really learned to sort of, like, just stick with Jeffrey sometimes when people are, like, even though what this person is saying is funny, it's extra funny when we sort of, like, linger on Jeffrey and sort of allow him to react to that. Most every submission was from some white dude from New York going through a divorce, and too few of them were about my people. And so I think, where are our stories? You know, where's our representation? And it was from that lack that my book was born. Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? <laughs> Thank you. Yo, Sharonda. There's something that is occurring to me now that there's a parallel between, you know, the the character in the book is sort of put in a box of what he's allowed to do. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, it's sort of true for anyone in, in Hollywood too. Um, you know, Jeffrey included that he's probably often people come to him for a certain type of role, a, a serious oh, sure. thing, you know, um, and so it's it is interesting that the the film really does raise that question about who gets to tell what stories and 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 putting people in boxes um you know the the movie obviously centers on the world of of book publishing but it does feel at times like it might be a a stand in for hollywood in some ways um and then it of course kind of veers in that direction uh later in the film do you feel like there are instances from your own career that you could relate to in terms of what Monk is dealing with and, and the expectations and sort of what, what you're allowed to do as an artist and what, what opportunities are, are given to you? 
Oh, absolutely. That's that's one of the reasons why I felt so thrilled when I was reading the novel Erasure the, by Percival Everett that, that I read is just there was so many overlaps to my own experience, both in journalism and in, in entertainment. You know, the, the I've had I've had uh, conversations in which uh, I've been told essentially to not essentially I've been told to make a character in a script blacker by an executive and then sort of the minute that I asked them, like, well, what's blacker mean? Like, you you have to explain to me what it means to make somebody blacker. And then, of course, they just drop that note because they know that they'll they'll sound like idiots if they try to explain <laughs> that note to me. I've had uh, I've I've been offered basically every single um, inspirational slave movie that there is to be made. And again, these aren't these aren't things that are happening. 20, 30, 40 years ago, these are things that are happening two years ago, you know, uh, these, these are things that are happening very, very recently. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that still going on. There's a real rigid, there's a real set of rigid restrictions that people put around black, um, artists. And that, that look, this is not to say that like things are not getting better. I also want to, want to make clear that like, you know, there's, this movie, uh, a real spiritual predecessor to this movie, is another comedy movie that I saw when I was a kid called uh, Hollywood Shuffle. I don't know if you've seen Hollywood Shuffle, but but Hollywood Shuffle meant a lot to me when I was younger. And it was probably the first time that I experienced... I didn't know what satire meant, I'm sure, but it was probably the first time that I experienced the effect of satire, which was, which was you know, I was probably eight or nine when I saw that movie. And I'd been taught about racism in school and at home. And, you know, I've, I'd seen a lot of very sad documentaries about race in America and sort of like heard all these brutal stories and learned these things in school and, and was watching movies like Mississippi Burning at home and stuff and sort of had learned all these lessons. This was the first time I think that I'd ever seen a movie where I was like, oh, these guys are talking about race and racism, but they're laughing about it. And sort of like they're, they're, they're sort of like clearly this stuff has hurt their feelings and they, they, they're sort of disappointed and, and frustrated, but they found a way to laugh about all this stuff and enjoy themselves and sort of like, and, and, and make a movie that's just, you know, really, really, really hilarious and funny. And um, they're making the same points that somebody else is trying to make in a sort of like more serious way. And it felt like, I don't know, like it, that, it just felt like a real revelation to me when I was a kid, like, Oh my God, this feels different in a way that, that feels really, really good. So my point with that was, was that, you know, the more that I learned about that movie as I got older and I got interested in filmmaking, I, I found out that Robert Townsend, who co-wrote and directed and starred in Hollywood Shuffle, he made that movie by maxing out like 12 or 13 of his credit cards. Like he, and they shot that movie over the course of like a year and a half or two years because they could only afford to shoot on a Saturday and a Sunday. They would rent the equipment for a weekend, shoot on a Saturday and a Sunday, return the equipment, go back to work for a couple of weeks until they could afford to rent the equipment again. Then they'd shoot on another weekend and so on and so forth until sort of like they had, were done with the movie. But it took them like a year and a half to sort of like shoot all that footage. And, you know, here I am almost 40 years later and you know, writing a movie and directing a movie is sort of like about similar, you know, bearing some resemblance to similar themes that were in Hollywood Shuffle. And this time I got a guy to write me a check for millions of dollars to go make this movie. You know, I'm not maxing on my credit cards. I'm not, um, I'm not sort of shooting on weekends. We sort of like got a good shooting schedule and was able to hire talented actors and competent sort of 
had department heads and sort of like competent crews. Like this was a real movie made sort of like thanks to uh, a, a two white guys writing me a big check. You know what I mean? Like that. That is that is sort of like the reality of how this movie got made. And so, you know, back then Robert Townsend is maxing out his credit cards and sort of like begging for the time of day from people. And here I am. I begged for the time of day from people and luckily I, but I was fortunate to find a couple of people who were willing to trust me and sort of like make the film. And so trust me, it wasn't a lot of people. It was literally like two or three people who trusted me enough and sort of like were willing to risk something to make the movie. But thanks to those three or two or three people, like the movie was made and I wasn't stuck trying to sort of like scrape together the money to, to make this for myself. So I do think that things are changing for the better obviously that we've got a long way to go and I wish that I wish that things were speedier but I never want to be like the you know I'm not sort of like so cynical to say that nothing's gotten better I think that I think that things have have gotten better and we're sort of seeing the progress um, daily coming up Cord opens up about why he never would have been able to make American fiction without years of therapy And later, he looks back at his time as a writer on The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore by sharing the one joke that Comedy Central's legal team didn't let them air. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with some of Cord Jefferson's collaborators, like The Good Place creator Mike Schur and The Nightly Show host Larry Wilmore, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Cord Jefferson. Well, you are very much in the award season conversation that we're that we're getting into. Um, you know, I know your first big awards experience was uh, probably on Watchmen uh, when you accepted your Emmy from home. Which must have been a or from, yeah. from a party from not very on, weird, yeah, from my Zoom boss's, or whatever my it was. boss's backyard, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so and you know, so presumably this time will be very different um, from that. Um, you know, you you famously in that acceptance speech thanked your your therapist, said you were a you know a different man than you were a few years prior. 
Thank you to my therapist, Ian. I am a different man than I was two years ago. I love you. You have uh, changed my life in many ways. Therapy should be free uh, in this country. And um, lastly, I think I would be remiss if we didn't recognize all the men and women who died in the Tulsa massacre in 1921, the original uh, sin of our show. Uh, this country uh, neglects and forgets its own history uh, at its own peril often. And I think that we should never forget them. So thank you so much for this honor. I feel uh, it's very how so what were you what was what was going on in your life then um you know and how and how is it different now oh man i was i came to a real i was very i'm still i'm a very i'm a very angry guy i've got a lot of anger in my in my soul and uh it it comes you know it and, and it was a it was a thing that i that i sort of didn't really understand how to channel in healthy ways uh, for the vast majority of my adult life. And so, you know, I was really, I was very much like Monk. There's a lot of me in this film and there's a lot of me in Monk in that I was very similar to him in that I, I was dealing with all this frustration and anger and sort of like the anger, sort of like underneath that anger was a lot of pain. And, uh, instead of sort of acknowledging that and trying to, to better myself and sort of like find ways to channel that anger that were healthier, I pushed people away. I was, I was a bad friend. I was, uh, I was sort of like a distant family member. I was a distant romantic partner. Like I was just very much isolate myself and sort of like uh, deflect all the time and obfuscate and sort of, and sort of skate around actually sort of trying to um, be vulnerable and intimate with people who were close to me. You know, there, there was, uh, I think in, t in 2018, my brother, my brother told me that, and this was sort of a number of things that were happening that year that, that led to me to finally sort of like really decide to change my life. But my, um, one of my brothers told me that my dad was, my dad was home. Uh, you know, they were all, they were all somewhere. I can't remember, but I wasn't there. I think it might've been some Thanksgiving because I did, I, I, I don't go home for Thanksgiving or at least I wasn't back then. And my, uh, Apparently, my dad asked one of my brothers, how, uh, how's Cord doing? And my brother said that he told him, like, how would we know that? Like, he doesn't talk to us. He doesn't talk to you. He doesn't. And, and, and he, it was just sort of I, had, I didn't realize that my family thought of me as being this kind of distant cipher who doesn't really talk to anybody. And it really um, it made me sad to hear my brother say that, just sort of to, to realize that the people who were the closest to me in the world felt like they didn't really know me and felt like they didn't really, they didn't really understand me because I didn't really talk to them about anything. I was that way with my family. I was that way with my friends. I was that way with my girlfriends. It just, it was, uh, I was just entirely closed off and, 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 um, upset with the world and with myself and with everything. And so, uh, in 2018, it just reached a real, I just reached a real emotional breaking point. I was, I felt so burdened. I was, I had all this great stuff going in my life, going on in my life. And, Things were going great with my career, and and I had all this this these wonderful things, and and I and I still felt miserable all the time, you know. It, it felt uh, incongruent with the rest of my life. I was like, why things are going so great for me? Why do I just feel sad all the time and upset and angry? And so I finally just went to I went to therapy. I went to I finally found a real. I had sort of convinced myself that I didn't need to be in therapy because everything was going great for me. And then I realized, you know, I was like, you know, it's not normal to cry so much in the shower, probably. <laughs> and so I decided to like actually 
find somebody who is going to help me. And I, and I found this therapist named Ian, who's the person that I thanked that, that night. And it just really changed my life. I just started to really open up and I started to be vulnerable and I started to be honest uh, with him and myself and with people in my life about, about who I was and the things that I thought and the things that hurt me and the things that I was embarrassed to talk about before. And, you know, I, I used to say that the, the most embarrassing thing that I, like a thing that I honestly could not have brought myself to say in 2017 to anybody was you hurt my feelings because I thought that it's just like, what a pathetic sentence, right, to tell somebody that. And it just felt like any time that I would try, that it just felt like any, any, any moment of vulnerability or, or pain or fear just to me felt like a weakness and it felt like something that I should be ashamed of. And a lot of this, you know, if we want to bring it back to the film, you know, a lot of this comes from an overbearing father figure the same way that those, you know, the, the siblings in the, in the film, despite the fact that you never meet the father, you can tell that they had a very overbearing, demanding father figure. So there's a lot of me in that, in that aspect of the film as well. So, uh, you know, meeting Ian was the, one of the greatest things that is, that's ever happened to me because not just personally on a, I just feel so much better on a personal and an emotional level, but I also think it's, it's, it's helped make me a better artist. You know, I think that, I think that the, a writer's job is to, you know, find ways to reflect the human experience and sort of like really sort of like dig down deep into characters and, and human beings and emotions and why we do the things that we do and sort of what is in our brains and, 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 and what happens to us that, that sort of like affects us 50 years down the road. And, um, to me, sort of like sifting through the details of my life and my childhood and my present life and, and what has happened to me and, and why I think that the way that I think and why I do the things that I do and why, I, why I'm angry the way that I'm angry. Like all of these questions that I have about my own life that, that I've been slowly trying to answer, uh, all of that uh, bears, uh, all of that sort of like has some bearing on my work now, you know, because I think that, I, I think that if I had tried to make this movie six years ago, I think I would have failed. I think it would have been terrible because I don't think that I would have been able to access the things that I needed to access in order to, to, to make it properly. You know, um, I think that I would have been too afraid to access the things that I needed to access in order to make it properly. And so I think that a lot of that has shown up in my work. It's just shown up in, you know, it's shown up in the, in the character of Monk, who I think has, is, is unable to actually is sort of like, you know, Monk's arc in the film. I don't want to give it away, but I think part of part of Monk's arc is him finding a way to just deal with all the anger that he feels. So, yeah, I mean, now we're we're almost uh, 10 years since you, you left Gawker, I believe. Um, you've been now sort of on in this business for for 10 years. Um, what were your what were your aspirations then? And how do you feel like, you know, have, are you surprised with where you are almost almost 10 years later? Yeah, I mean, my aspirations when I got into TV was, you know, my aspirations when I got into writing was I just wanted to write for as long as possible in as many ways as people would let me. I just always wanted to do that. I wanted to do as many things as people would let allow me to do. I think that I definitely didn't start thinking that I would direct anything. I always thought that directors needed to go to film school and know know about camera techniques and, and lenses and, and lighting and all these things that I didn't have a technical knowledge of. And it wasn't until I was working on Master of None, actually, and Aziz Ansari 
asked me if I'd ever thought about directing anything. And I said, well, no, you know, I didn't go to film school. And he said, he said, I didn't go to film school. I went, he said, I went to NYU and studied business. He was like, and I got nominated. And he said, I got nominated for a Golden Globe for directing last year. So like that, he was like, you don't have to go to film school for this stuff. And so he kind of was the first person to put the seed, the seed of the idea in my head that I could direct. And after that, I started to consider that a little bit more. But that was certainly never on my on my radar when I first started working in TV. I just thought at most I might be able to, you know, become a showrunner for a for a TV series that 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 uh, existed somewhere down the line. And so I just wrote this movie on a whim. I got a I got the rights for free from the author and I just decided to go write the script on spec and see what happens. And uh, when they told me that they were going to greenlight it, when I met with T-Street and they told me that they were greenlighting the movie, I started crying in the meeting because I was, because I truly thought that that might never happen. I might not, I might never get an opportunity to do that. So it was, uh, you know, the thing that I set out to do when I first started in this industry is not the thing that I ended up doing here. Like this was writing and directing a film was nowhere on my radar when I first started almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Now the first movie that you wrote directed is, is pretty likely to be represented well at the, at the Oscars. And so, I mean, (laughs) how do you, where where do you go from here? How do you, how do you top that? Or do you have to kind of like (laughs) regroup and, and think about what you, what you want to do next? No, I think that, you know, I just want to keep, I just want to keep making stuff that feels like it's challenging for me. And so the, the, I'm writing a movie right now that is a, uh, it's a Western, it's a contemporary Western kind of like noir, noirish, noirish, neo-noir, neo-Western, um, set in the American Southwest and sort of bears, you know, there's some similar themes to what's in this movie. It's sort of the, yeah, it, it bears some similar themes to what's in what's in American fiction, but it also, you know, there's also a, it's also a big departure, and I think that the reason that I wanted to do that is I didn't want to ever, you know, one of the reasons that I, I think Francis Ford Coppola is is amazing is because like, you know, he made Godfather, but then he also made Apocalypse Now, and then he also made Jack, that Robin Williams movie, and then he also made that Bram Stoker's Dracula with Keanu Reeves. Like, he just really just goes for it. And he's just like, this is not, not in my wheelhouse necessarily, but like, I want to tell this story and I'm going for it. And I really appreciate that, that, um, I think that that is sort of a, uh, that's something to aspire to. I think the sort of like, and, and look, sometimes the, the projects don't work and that's fine. But like, I sort of, I envy his courage and sort of like his willingness to try things, you know? And so for me, a, a, a sort of Western, a cowboy movie that feels like a big departure from this film in a way that makes me feel a little scared that maybe I won't be able to do it. But I think that on the other side of the fear for me has always been sort of like the, the, the best parts of my life. So I'm, uh, I'm going to, uh, yeah, I just want to, I just want to keep challenging myself. That's all. And maybe, you know, I just can't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down in like, well, this is what worked last time. So I want to, let's just try doing that again. Cause then I, f- I feel like that's, that to me is like, what's the problem? What that's the main problem with Hollywood in general these days is just like, they're always looking to like what worked, what worked the last time. Let's try to just replicate that. And I don't want to, I don't ever want to get bogged down in that, in that mentality. With the time that we have left, I want to do our, our final segment called the first laugh. So we're going to talk about some some firsts and things around uh, comedy in your in your life and career. Beautiful. Starting with the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up. What comes to mind? 
Uh, the Simpsons. The Simpsons was probably the first show that I found that wasn't given to me by my parents. It was kind of like, you know, I think your parents sort of like shape your taste when you're a young person because you're listening to the records that they play and the TV shows that they watch and the movies that they watch. And The Simpsons to me was the first thing that I discovered that my parents didn't watch. In fact, like, you know, my mom was like, he, the Bart Simpson swears at his parents. Like you shouldn't be, you know, it was a, it felt like a little dangerous. Like my parents didn't want me to be watching it. And I remember, I remember watching it and, I, and like thinking that it was the funniest thing that I'd ever seen and feeling like it really felt like, it felt like my own thing. Like I, I, like I had finally found a thing that was important to me and not anybody else in my family. Going back to the nightly show with Larry Wilmore, do you remember the first joke or segment or, or something that you got on that you, that you felt really good about or, or that really worked and you felt like you said, you know, you were trying to figure out what the show was. So was there something that sort of locked that in for you a bit? Yeah, I had a, I'll tell you the, 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 this is a joke that like made everybody laugh and then we ended up put we ended up taping but the but the uh censors the, the the comedy central people made us take it out because they said they said because they said we that we were going too hard on them. I used to write a bunch of uh I used to I started this thing where we would make fun of Spirit Airlines all the time just because I have <laughs> I have so much resentment against Spirit Airlines. They've ruined my life so many times. And so um I think it was in the first couple months of the show but I said that we were talking, I can't remember what the setup was, but it was like, it was, I, I, we were talking about the, somehow the setup for the joke was like, what airline would Jesus fly on? And I said that, and I said, well, of course, that we, I wrote this joke that said, well, of course, um, Jesus would fly on Spirit Airlines because it's full of lepers and prostitutes. And, 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 then, <laughs> and then we put it, and that made that was it. Too, that, that was made, too far. That made, yeah, that made it, it onto the air, but then they, Apparently the uh, the the legal team at Comedy Central made us cut it, so it never actually it never actually made it made it onto the air. But that was uh, that was my favorite joke that they ended up cutting. <laughs> Finally, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Oh man, there's. I mean, I've had so many embarrassing <laughs> moments in my career. I think. <laughs> No, I can't really think of one. I think that the, 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 I mean, I guess I've been, I guess I've been, uh, fired a few times at different moments, <laughs> at different moments in my life. I got, <laughs> I, I, I got, uh, I got fired one time, um, from a, uh, a busing job when I used to bus tables in, um, in high school because, uh, I think they caught us, um, I think my, they caught my friend and I stealing creme brulee from the freezer and uh, and and running behind the restaurant to eat it. <laughs> that was of all the fire. things to steal, yeah, creme brulee. Wow. I mean, the creme brulee. Look, we had expensive taste for sixteen-year-old idiots. Uh, the, uh, uh, I got fired from that job. I got fired from a. Um, I got fired from a uh, a magazine writing job because they decided they didn't want to publish a magazine anymore, and that was a uh, that was a particularly miserable day. But I think every time, yeah, every time that I've been fired, I always think that it's going to be the end of the world. And then, you know, and, and I feel miserable for, for a period of time. Like I've really let a bunch of people down. And then I realized like, Oh, I didn't really like that job anyway. That's always been the key <laughs> is like, I didn't, I didn't really enjoy this job anyway. I think that that is, that's always the lesson is like, if you're, you know, generally if you're getting fired, uh, it's because you're not you're not like liking the work that you do. If you're really liking the work that you do, it's pretty hard to get fired, I think, you know. 
Yeah. Um, well, Cord, thank you so much for doing this. Um, you know, as I said, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, of your new movie, um, and I feel like you've you've written so many things that I've loved over the years between Master of None and Watchmen. And um, yeah, I just uh, good luck with with everything as we get into further into this crazy awards time. And um, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much to Cord Jefferson for that really honest and meaningful conversation. Maybe not our funniest episode ever, but do you know what is very funny? American fiction. The film will have a limited release in theaters next Friday, December 15th, and expand from there, so definitely check it out when it makes it to your city. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.